Almighty God, who through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, overcame death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life, grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection may be raised from the death of sin by your life-giving Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome back after a brief break for the tea room. Um, we are in Ephesians chapter 2 today, and we're going to read through just the first five verses, because that's all the further we're going to get this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll go read through these first five verses and then come back and look at them in closer detail. St. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you recall our discussion from a couple of weeks ago, we said that the Apostle Paul is giving us a picture here in Ephesians chapter 2 of what the human condition is apart from a relationship with God. And it is a bleak picture. We said that there are basically three views of the human condition in the world today. The first view is that mankind is, spiritually speaking, morally speaking, well, healthy, on the upswing. We said this was a very popular view in the latter part of the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century. Many people took Darwin's provisional theory for biological evolution and overlaid that on social systems that became known as social Darwinism. The idea was that humanity was getting better and better on the upswing. That yes, there were still problems to be worked out, but in the end, mankind was basically going to arrive and there would be peace and prosperity on the earth. You'll recall that World War I was supposed to be the war that would end all wars. But that simply didn't happen. World War I ended in 1918, barely 20 years later. The world was engulfed in yet another conflict, even worse than the first. And we said that this view that humanity is spiritually healthy, whole, well, that fell out of favor in the wake of the Holocaust, in the wake of the rise of communism. The second view is that humanity is not well. Humanity is sick. We are morally sick, we are spiritually sick, but the key is to find the cure. I mean, after all, even if somebody is very sick, so long as there is life, there is the possibility, be it ever so slim, there is nevertheless the possibility of recovery. And so many people say that what you really need to do is find the right combination of spiritual drugs, as it were, the right combination that you can apply to the human condition so that we can get well. We pointed out two weeks ago that generally this means education, opportunity, 
resources. People think if you can just give people the right amount of education or the right type of education, if you can provide them with the right amount of opportunities, and if you can apply the right amount of resources to those education and to that opportunity, well, then you can eventually resolve all of humanity's problems. The problem, of course, with that view is that we are among the most educated people in the history of the world. We are an affluent culture. We have opportunities galore. We have resources, the likes of which previous generations could never even imagine. And yet, the human condition has in no way improved. In fact, oftentimes when we look at the spiritual state of the world, things seem to have gotten worse, not better in spite of all of these things. Which leads us then to the third view, which is the Apostle Paul's view, the biblical view, that the human condition is very dire indeed. We're not healthy. We're not even merely sick. What does Paul say? He says we're dead. Spiritually speaking, we're dead. We may be physically alive in the sense that we're animated and we're walking around and we're transacting business and we're making deals and that sort of thing. But spiritually speaking, in terms of our relationship with God, Paul says we are dead. Dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Spiritually, morally, and ultimately we're going to be physically dead. This is the consequence of the fall. I pointed out that uh, I subscribe to the trichotomous view of the human person, that you and I are made up of three parts. We're made up of body, soul, and spirit. Now, sometimes people combine the spirit and the soul together, so we just have uh, a physical part and an eternal part. But I think if you read through the Old Testament, you see a distinction between the spirit and the soul. But the body is that part which most of us pay attention to in the 21st century, the physical part. That's the part that we get up with every morning. It's the part that some of us shave. It's the part that we work out with in the, in the, uh, the gym. It's, it's the part that we want to maintain because it's so precious to us. Which is ironic because Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? In Jesus' mind, it's the soul, it's the spirit. It's, it's the eternal aspect of the human being that really matters the most. In the Old Testament, the soul might very well be described as personality, the seat of our moral decision-making. And the spirit, the spirit is that part of us which has an eternal destiny, our God consciousness, if you were. God is spirit, we're told, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And if you think about it, the fall affected all three aspects of who we are as human beings. When, when God said, if you eat of the tree to Adam and Eve, you will surely die. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, you think about the day they ate of the tree. Did they die on that day? Well, they didn't die physically. In fact, we're told that they were driven out of the garden. You remember that? They went on to have children and so forth outside of the garden. So it's interesting to note they did not die on that day. At least they didn't die physically. See, that's all we're concerned with is, is physical death. But there is a worse kind of death. They certainly died spiritually. That is in terms of their relationship with God. After the fall, after they ate of the tree that they were not to eat of, God comes walking in the cool of the day looking for Adam and Eve. I said it's that wonderful picture of, of intimacy. God walking in the cool of the day. Anybody that lives in Charleston in the summertime can understand the wonderful image of walking in the cool of the day. God walked with them. This picture of intimacy, of a loving relationship. But all of a sudden, when God comes looking for them for that evening stroll, 
They are hiding, aren't they? They are hiding. Why? Because they're naked and they're ashamed. They've been exposed. So the first thing that perishes, you see, as a consequence of the fall is that intimacy, that relationship with God. You ever had a broken relationship and you feel awkward the next time you see the person? So the first thing that dies is their spiritual relationship with God. And because they are no longer in a spiritual relationship with God, what dies next? The soul, their moral reasoning. Adam, what is it that you have done? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? The woman <laughs> that thou gavest me. See, immediately what happens? Instead of taking responsibility for his own actions, he what? Deflects the blame. And we have been playing the blame game ever since. When somebody accuses you of something, what's the first thing we tend to do? We tend to deflect the blame. We tend to try and explain why we're not responsible for our own actions or for the consequences of our own actions. So they die spiritually, they die morally, and then ultimately what happens? They die physically. And Paul says that is the real spiritual condition. We're not healthy. My goodness, take a look at what man has done to mankind. In spite of all of our advances in terms of science and technology, we are not even sick with the hope of recovery. Paul says we are dead. And if that weren't bad enough, he goes on to say we're not just dead, we're under judgment. He says we are children of wrath. In fact, he says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the problem is not just that we're physically, morally, spiritually perishing, but we're also under the judgment, under the wrath of God. And we talked about what wrath here means. Wrath does not necessarily mean anger in the sense that we have human anger where we fly off the handle or lose our temper. God is not like that at all. The wrath is that aspect of God's justice, His holiness, which cannot abide by sin. And because sin has now entered into the human condition, God cannot abide by us. So we're dead spiritually and we're under wrath. Most of us think of ourselves as being children of God. We hear that all the time. Aren't we all children of God? Well, it's right here in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, you were by nature, that is by virtue of your inclusion in the human race, a creature of God, but a child of wrath. Now, that's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? That's a pretty sorry state. And the question you have to ask yourself is, well, what can a dead person do about their sorry state? See, that's what makes the situation so tragic, the way Paul describes it here. To be spiritually dead means that there's nothing you can do about it. I think I pointed out two weeks ago when we first looked at this section that when I would work through a sermon or through a class like this, when I was the rector at St. Helena's in Buford, I would walk through the cemetery it's kind of quiet, and the cemetery down there was walled in. So, you know, it was a quiet, it was a place where I could sort of work through things. And I must have, the 17 years that I was there, I must have preached hundreds of sermons in that cemetery. I always say it was sometimes good preparation for Sunday morning. But at any rate, I'm preaching my heart out. I must have issued, I don't know, hundreds of altar calls, and nobody ever responded once. <laughs> and why? Because dead people can't respond, you see. They were dead. And Paul says that's where we are. 
And yet, you have these wonderful words in verse 4. Two words. If you're reading, is anybody out there reading, by the way, from the NIV, the New International Version? Anybody have a copy of the New International Version this morning? You do? Greg, how does, how does, um, how does verse 4 begin? All right. Now notice it says, but because of his great mercy. The ESV gets the translation just a little bit closer to the Greek. In Greek syntax, it doesn't begin but because. It simply begins with these two words, but God. But God. Here's the human condition. We are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We are not merely sick. We are dead. We are in a helpless condition, and furthermore, as a result of that, we are under the judgment of God. It is the bleakest situation. It is the most despairing situation imaginable, but God. Those two words. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was for many years the senior pastor at Westminster Chapel in London, and perhaps one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, said that in those two words you have the gospel in a nutshell. But God. Our situation is dire, but God. But God what? But God obviously rescues us. Not because we deserve it, in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it, but God. I want to ask four questions this morning, and I want us to work through them. Who is this God? who acts to save us? What has he done to save us? Why has he done it? And finally, I want us to ask ourselves, what must we do in response to this God's action on our, on our behalf? But God. So the first question, who is this God that acts on our behalf? You know, when you think of the sciences, you probably think of things like biology, geology. That word ology, that's what it means. It means science. Biology means the science of life. Geology is the science of, well, the study of the earth and stratas and so forth. Theology, for centuries, was known as the queen of the sciences. Because theology is the science of what? The science of God, it is the study of God. In fact, if you go to Cambridge and Oxford today, when they deliver, when they hand out their degrees, you can get a degree in physics or you can get a degree in history or a degree in English, whatever it is, but they have certain departments that are regarded as being of higher importance than others. And the highest degree still at Oxford and Cambridge today is a doctorate in theology. Because theology is considered to be the queen of the sciences. It informs all of the other sciences, and furthermore, it is the greatest subject that any man or any woman could possibly study. God. God. So who is this God that we are looking at? Who is this God who has acted on our behalf? Paul would tell us that he is the greatest subject imaginable. Doesn't matter what you're interested in, doesn't matter what you've studied, 
You can spend your whole life studying the works of William Shakespeare, and it may be worth your time and your effort, but there is no study that is more worthy of your time or your effort than the study of God, who he is and what he has done on our behalf. Who is this God? Well, the Bible tells us that he is first and foremost the transcendent one. If you look at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's interesting to note that the Bible does not begin with any philosophical arguments for the existence of God. It just begins with what? God. Because before that, there was no one. There was nothing. God is the transcendent one. He is the eternal one. And when we say God is eternal and transcendent, what we mean is that God is distinct from and independent of everything. Now, you and I can't say that. We all come from some place, and we all come from someone. Charlestonians know this very well. Many of you know very well where you come from and who you come from. And you've got long and illustrious family lines. But the reality is we all come from somewhere and from something. But that's not true of God. God always was. I love the way Genesis begins. In the beginning, God. There was only God. So who is this God that has acted on our behalf? He is the eternal God. He is the transcendent God. He always was, is now, and will forever be. He needs no one. He needs nothing. There is nothing that he should desire that he cannot supply it for himself. Now, that's not true for us, but it is true for God. The Bible also says that this God who has acted on our behalf is the sovereign one. Uh, sometimes when we speak of God's sovereignty, we speak in terms of the omnis, three omnis, characteristics of God. The first is his omnipotence. It basically means all-powerful. This is why we begin our prayers, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Almighty. It means all-powerful. The God who has acted on our behalf is eternal, and he is all-powerful. Now, mind you, when the Bible says that God is almighty, all-powerful, that does not mean that God can do all things. Isn't that interesting? There are actually, believe it or not, some things that you and I can do that God cannot do. Did you know that? We can sin, <laughs> exactly. God cannot do that because God cannot be untrue to his nature, to his character, to his person. Now, you and I can, but God cannot. So when we speak of God's omnipotence, when we speak of God being almighty, what we mean is that God has complete authority over every aspect of the universe. He is not subject to anyone or anything else. He has complete authority and control over every aspect of the universe. Another aspect of God's sovereignty is his omniscience. He is not only all-powerful, he is also all-knowing. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, 
and from whom no secrets are hid. This is not a God who is trapped in time. You know, physicists and cosmologists tell us that with the Big Bang, time and space as we know it began. Now, that's hard for us to imagine. Those of you who are more scientifically minded perhaps can get an inkling of what that means. But until the Big Bang, there was no time and there was no space. <laughs> Isn't that hard to imagine? Because you and I are creatures of time. We are creatures of space. But God is not. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. You and I live in this moment. And that's all we can see. That's all we can experience. We do not know what's coming down the pike. Now, we may plan, but we don't know what's coming down the pike. How many of you have ever had the experience in your life of being surprised? That's because we do not know what is coming down the pike. But God knows. See, when we view time, we view time like a line on a piece of paper, don't we? And we have over here on the left, 1776, and we have over here on the right, 2018, and that line goes on to infinity to the right, and it goes back in infinity to the left. And we're right here on this little portion of it. I've sometimes described it this way. It's like going to New York City for the Thanksgiving Day Parade, the Macy's Parade. And if you're standing down there on the street with thousands of people, how much of that parade do you see? Just what's right in front of you. You can't see what's coming, and you can no longer see what's past. All you can see is what is right in front of you. But God is like the person on the 37th floor of a building and he looks down and he sees the whole sweep of things. If time for us is a line on a piece of paper, God holds the piece of paper. So when we think about the God who has acted on our behalf, who is this God? Our God oftentimes is too small. The God who has acted on our behalf is the transcendent one. He is the sovereign one, which means he's all-powerful, He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, and he is omnipresent, which means ever-present. Now again, there is a caveat here. Just as when we say that God is almighty, that does not mean that he can do all things. So when we say that God is omnipresent, that does not mean that God is in everything and every place. God, for instance, is not in that bottle of booze that is killing your loved one. What it does mean is that God is the one who holds all things together. That's how Paul describes it in Colossians. He is the one who holds all things together. The one who notes the, the fall of the sparrow from the sky. The one who numbers the hairs on your head is also the one who controls the rolling of the spheres in their orbits. You see, when you begin to study God, when you begin to study theology, the queen of the sciences, it expands <laughs> your mind. You begin to discover that you are entering into a subject matter the likes of which you have never imagined, and it is a study that can go on forever. Now, why is all of this important? Because God says, or Paul says, God has all of these things. This is who he is. He is, a, he, is, he is the greatest subject imaginable. And yet, for one reason or another, he is concerned for us. 
the same God who's concerned for the rolling of the spheres in their orbits, for planets and solar systems and galaxies beyond our own, which we cannot even see, all the galaxies that we continue to explore and discover. God is concerned with them, but he's also concerned with you and with me. So he is the transcendent God, he is the sovereign God, but he is also, the scripture is very clear about this, the holy and just God. The book of Genesis says, will not the judge of all the world do right? Of all the adjectives that are used in the Bible to describe God, and there are many, loving, merciful, kind, the one that is used more than any other in both the Old and the New Testament to describe God is the adjective holy. He is the Holy One. He is the Holy One of Israel. We say it every Sunday. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. He is the Holy One. So He is sovereign. He is transcendent. He is all-powerful. He is ever-present. He holds all things together. But we must never forget that the God we worship is a God who is holy and He is just. And that's important because if there is ever to be justice in the world... And we don't want it for ourselves, but let's be honest, we really do want justice. We want to know that God is not going to overlook what happened in Germany in the 1930s and the 1940s. We want to know that God is going to take what is broken and foul and wicked in this world and set it right, don't we? Who wants to live in a world in which there is no justice? So God is the one who is holy and just, which, if you think about it, is why our situation is so dire. <laughs> because when we say that God is holy and just, what we mean is that God is opposed to everything that is sinful. Here's a simple definition of sin. Sin is doing anything that God forbids, and it's a failure to do anything that God commands. So let me see a show of hands of how many sinners we've got out there today. That's us, isn't it? We frequently fail to do what God commands. We frequently do what God forbids. And that's why our situation is so dire. This is the God of the universe who calls all things into existence by the sheer power of his word. He is answerable to no one. He's dependent upon no one. And he is holy and just. And that's why we are children of wrath. That's who this God is. But the Bible also says he is merciful and he is loving. So the sovereign God, the eternal God, the almighty God, the holy and righteous judge of all the universe is also merciful and loving. In fact, 1 John says God is love. He is the personification of love. So that's who this God is. Now, here's the second question. What has he done? What has he done for us? Well, Paul makes it very plain here. He has rescued us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There's the word, saved. But God. But God what? But God saves us. 
in this wretched, terrible state in which we find ourselves. How does he rescue us? Paul says he does three things. First of all, he makes us alive. Oftentimes we think that faith leads to new birth, don't we? I want you to understand, this is what theologians call the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. We think that if you believe in Christ, you will be saved. But actually, dead people can't believe in anything, can they? So it's interesting, what does Paul say? But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, even when we were dead. See, we didn't choose God, he chose us. He made us alive even when we were dead. He's under no obligation to do so. Now, I know that this is a deep subject. I know it immediately springs to people's minds. Well, this sounds like predestination. Sounds like election. Well, perhaps it is. Paul deals with that in the very first chapter of this epistle. But that's a whole other class. All I want you to realize is that dead people cannot choose anything. So how does this God of the universe save us? He makes us alive. Regeneration, new birth, precedes faith. That is why faith is described as a gift and not a work. See, if there was anything that you and I contributed to our own salvation, then we would have something to boast about. But dead people can't boast. God makes us alive. That's the first thing he does. He makes us alive even when we were dead. Second thing is this. He frees us from sin's power. Look at the way Paul describes it in verse 6. He says, you were dead in your trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. That is why it is by grace that you have been saved. What is grace? God's undeserved, unearned favor. It has to be by grace because you're dead. But then he goes on to say this in verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is to say, he gave us a position of honor. And we can only be in the presence of God if what? If the sin, which he hates, has been purged and done away. And so what does God do? He makes us alive. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does is he frees us from the power of sin. He frees us from the penalty of sin. One day, he's going to free us ultimately from the presence of sin. When we are with him in the heavenly places. So... He's made us alive. He's freed us from sin's power in our life. Now that Christ dwells within us, now that he has made us alive, we are able to choose the right. It's not us choosing, but it's God the Holy Spirit choosing within us. And here's the third thing that God has done. He has satisfied his own wrath. See, God is simultaneously just and merciful. It's not either or. God can't be only just, and he can't be only merciful. He has to be both. And so the human condition is a bit of a dilemma. Because on the one hand, God can't be untrue to himself. If you eat of the tree, you will what? You will die. The wages of sin is what? Death. That's what we all deserve, right? That's what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is death. There's the death. That's what we deserve. But on the other hand, God is gracious and merciful. 
And he desires not the death of a sinner, but that they might live. So how in the world does God reconcile this and be true to himself? He can't deny himself. He is all of those things simultaneously, sovereign, just, holy, but also merciful, loving, and gracious. How does he do that? He does it in the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, you have the God-man, the unique God-man. He is fully God and fully man. Not 50-50, 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, 90-10, no. He is one, this is the mystery of the incarnation. It's called the doctrine of the hypostatic union, for those of you who like big words. He is fully God and he is fully man. The perfect man. And there on the cross, Jesus Christ offered himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. First John describes it as the propitiation for our sins, as you hear it in the comfortable words. In the 1928 prayer book, not in the 79, but in the 28, he becomes the propitiation for our sins. So that there on the cross, as the perfect man, Jesus can take all the sins of eternity heaped upon him. And God meets out his wrath, his righteous judgment on Jesus Christ. But then, as the perfect God, he rises again and presents himself as a sacrifice unto the Father for the sins of the whole world. Who but God could think of that? You know what Jesus Christ became on the cross? Centuries ago, when royal children were schooled, they were oftentimes schooled with other children. They weren't just tutored at home. They were tutored with other children. But the other children, because they were not royal children, were regarded as being different. Now, if a royal child acted up or disobeyed, punishment had to be meted out. But because the schoolmaster was a commoner and could not touch a royal child, they would bring up some innocent child. And they would mete out the punishment on that innocent child as an example to the royal child. That innocent child was called the whipping boy. Jesus Christ on the cross became our whipping boy. He paid a price he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And he took all of that upon himself as the perfect man, the new Adam. And then having paid the price, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, he then rose victorious, conquering death forever. That's what this God has done on our behalf. We were dead. We were slaves to sin. We were under judgment, but God. What a wonderful message of hope and encouragement. It does not matter how bleak your circumstances are, there's always a but God. Always a but God. Now here's the next question. Why did he do it? We've already said this God is sovereign. He's, he's under no obligation to do it. He doesn't need us. We need each other, but God doesn't need us. Don't, never fall into the trap of thinking God needs us. He already had perfect fellowship. He had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. How can you improve on that? God does not need us. 
So why does he act on our behalf when he is the creator of the universe? He could very well have wiped the whole thing out and started all over again. Why does he act, this God of the universe, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, Lord of all, dependent on nothing? Why does he do this? The scripture says, because of his great love. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, God who needs nothing loves into existence holy superfluous creations. Do you ever think of yourself as being wholly superfluous? Well, in God's eyes, technically speaking, we are, aren't we? God loves into existence holy superfluous creations in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, for there are no tenses in God, the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. The flayed back pressed hard against the uneven stake. The nails driven through the mesial nerves. The repeated torture of back and arms that is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself the inventor of all loves. See, God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us in spite of the fact that we're not. Why did he do it? Because of his great love. He also did it because of his great mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is grace in action. It is compassion toward those who do not deserve it. God had mercy on us. We didn't deserve it. He did it because of his grace. That's probably Paul's favorite word in Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not by works so that no man may boast. By grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor. And because of his kindness. You know, compared to grace and mercy and love, kindness seems like a weak word, doesn't it? Have you ever thought about God's many acts of kindness toward you? Every breath you take, every happy moment you've ever had, these are acts of kindness. We oftentimes dwell on the depressing side of life, don't we? But there are so many little blessings, so many rich blessings. The fellowship that you share in this parish is one of the great blessings. God acts on our behalf not because he has to, but because he loves us. And not because we're lovable, but in spite of the fact that we're not. He acts on our behalf because he is merciful toward the pitiful. He acts on our behalf because he is gracious and he is kind. In short, God acts on our behalf because this is who he is. He is the loving one. He is the merciful one. He is the gracious one. He is the kind one. And that brings us then to the final question. What must I do in response to what God has done for me? The fact that this God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who calls all things into existence ex nihilo, who created the stars and the solar systems, who is nevertheless concerned for us in spite of the fact that we are under his wrath, 
who sends his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, who pays the price that you and I deserve to pay. We deserve to be separated from him for eternity, but he reconciles us by his grace and mercy through the shed blood of the Lamb. What does that now require of us? Isaac Watts put it best one of the great hymns of the church, one of my favorites. He says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And here's the final stanza. This is the critical one. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present, far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. What must we do? We must give everything, everything we have, all of our intellect, all of our worldly goods, all of our efforts, to the task of serving him who out of his great love and mercy gave everything for us. When you realize your situation and remember but God, you want to sacrifice everything for the sake of him. And when we start to do that, then humanity really does start to get well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, almighty God, eternal creator of the universe, the first, the last, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, we come before you unworthy to stand in your presence. Sinful, fallen beings under wrath, but pleading the blood of Jesus before your throne, knowing that you have made us alive even when we were dead. Lord, help us to see ourselves for what we really are, to see you for who you really are, and to see on the cross of Jesus Christ justice, mercy, kiss each other. And then fill our hearts with such gratitude that we give everything we have for the sake of him who gave everything for us, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, thank you.